Welcome to Everyday Wellness Podcast. I'm your host, nurse practitioner, Cynthia Thurlow. This podcast is designed to educate, empower, and inspire you to achieve your health and wellness goals. My goal and intent is to provide you with the best content and conversations from leaders in the health and wellness industry each week and impact over a million lives. Today, I'm joined by my fan favorite and good friend, Dr. Tabitha Barber. She is a triple board certified OBGYN specializing in perimenopause, menopause, and functional medicine. She is often affectionately referred to as the Gutsy Gynecologist, and she has a wonderful podcast called The Gutsy Gynecologist Show. You can catch her on two previous podcast episodes, 206 and 212, both of which rank in the top 20 downloaded podcasts in the past 18 months. I am so glad to have her back today. We did an AMA style, which is an ask me anything. We spoke at length about weight gain related to perimenopause and menopause, as well as the issues with estrogen replacement therapy and how in a low estradiol state, as well as in a estrogen dominant state, weight loss resistance can be problematic as well as xenoestrogens, the role of libido and how this can be impacted by many different reasons, how to address a partial hysterectomy and HRT, bioidenticals versus synthetic hormones, skin reactions relative to menopause and perimenopause, including histamine released, mast cell degranulation, and high estrogen, the impact of emotional eating and leptin resistance, as well as many other topics. Thank you so much for these great questions. I know this will be another fan favorite episode with Dr. Tabitha. It's such an honor to reconnect with you and to be able to share your wisdom and to serve as a resource. I know that the last time we connected, you were licensed in over 30 states. I'm sure you probably are licensed in even more now. What's the number now? <laughs> I'm not even exactly sure. I did <laughs> give up a couple that I haven't seen women in, I think, let me tell you, Maine and Iowa, but I am hoping to pick up California here in the next oh, couple of weeks. I'm I bringing so. on a provider who's licensed in California, who has studied functional medicine and hormones. So I'm really excited because women are just begging for help. They're searching, like you said, and their conventional doctors are not helping them at all. So I'm really excited that I'm going to be opening up to California, giving women the chance to like feel good again. Yeah. And it's interesting to me because I run a program, a group program, and obviously I'm, I'm licensed in one state. So there, when there are people who need or are ready for hormone replacement therapy, or just need someone in person, California has been a big void unless people are in like the LA orange County area. It's been really challenging to refer people out. And that for me has been a, a source of frustrate pain point for myself, but yeah. also my patients. So I'm grateful that you'll have that connection to California. So let's start with what I refer to affectionately as the big elephant in the room. This is a question from Michelle. She said, I'm exploring the idea of hormone replacement therapy to help with menopause symptoms of hot <laughs> flashes and weight gain. I've heard estrogen replacement helps with weight gain and that it causes weight gain, which is true. Oh my gosh. That's a great question. <laughs> They're both true. <laughs> too much estrogen causes weight gain, too little estrogen causes weight gain. So that's why women are so confused. You know, I myself, I was very confused about that. 
when I was just practicing standard OBGYN because we're trained to think that the weight gain happens only from menopause, from that drop in estrogen. But now we understand that estrogen dominance you do gain weight because estrogen is a growth hormone. It is telling your body to get ready to carry a pregnancy. So it puts the fat around your hips. It puts the fat around your waist. It's a growth hormone. It makes your breasts bigger. So too much or too little is not good. You want to figure out that sweet spot. Yeah. And I think for a lot of individuals, I hear women saying things like, I'm fearful to take hormones because I don't want to gain more weight. I do know that there was a study that came out in late 2022, and we can certainly link it. And it speaks specifically to this rise in follicular stimulating hormones. So FSH, which is a routine lab and the drop in estrogen. So drop in estradiol, predominant form of estrogen heading into the end of our cycling years, that in and of itself along with these changes in skeletal muscle are oftentimes what drive the challenges with weight loss resistance. So, you know, you can be low in estrogen in your body, but also be estrogen dominant, given the fact that we're just exposed to estrogen mimicking chemicals, you know, all these plastics. I always say this toxin bucket that we're exposed to throughout our lifetime can be hugely problematic in perimenopause and into menopause. And I think that can sometimes be a shock. I think people are like, well, I'm doing all the right things. How could I possibly be estrogen dominant? And has it been your clinical experience as well that it's the exposure to these estrogen mimicking chemicals that can offset that receptor and actually make the weight loss resistance piece. It can be another contributor, but can actually exacerbate it. Yeah. So I would say there's a couple things and those xenoestrogens is what, you know, we usually refer to them as because they're binding to estrogen receptors and sending a warped signal that is similar to estrogen, grow, grow, grow. And women are getting exposed to these in their scented candles, in their fragrances that they're wearing and burning in their houses. And so much of it is coming from the plastics in our food. We're heating our food in plastic like never before. Or when you get takeout, it's always in plastic. So that hot food is causing all of that plastic chemical to seep into your food and then you're ingesting it or you're drinking it. And so that really is contributing to this imbalance of estrogen and progesterone where estrogen's dominating and naturally our progesterone levels start to decline because we aren't ovulating consistently every month. We're running out of eggs essentially. And so then you get more imbalanced because of that. So you get this combination and it ends up as a perfect storm of just feeling irritable gaining weight, having headaches, more PMS symptoms, breast tenderness, the whole works. So it's not a fun time, but it's definitely something that you can tackle and minimize, you know, clean up your environment, clean up your diet, get all of those plastics, those fragrances, those chemicals out of your life as much as you can. And that's going to have a huge impact. I'll tell you, just going organic with tampons, pads, or a diva cup, that can be a game changer for women. All of a sudden their periods aren't as painful and heavy because they're not getting all that toxic burden that they're absorbing right through their vagina. You know, our vagina is very, it's 
like a sponge. It's very absorbent. It will soak up whatever's in there. And so if you have, you know, cheap tampons full of chemicals, it's really toxic to your body. So those are just a few quick ways that you can turn things around for sure. Well, I mean, how many of us thought nothing of buying, you know, the Tampax brand tampons our entire lifetime? And only in the last, I think there are a lot of startups, younger women who are speaking up and speaking out against the kind of conventional chemicals that we're exposed to. And to your point, the vagina is a very vascular environment. I mean, it's much like, you know, our mucosa in our mouths, very, very vascular. There's a lot of medications that we prescribe to be taken right along the buccal mucosa. And so if you're listening, you're still getting a menstrual cycle, know that there are other options and you are worth the additional four or $5 to have products that are going to be better. I have a lot of girlfriends that love the Diva Cups. It requires a little bit of trial and error. Right, <laughs> Obviously, right. probably don't want to try that on a day you're traveling, but I think that could be <laughs> a really nice option and you know, probably a bit more environmentally friendly than tampons and pads as well. Yeah, exactly. And I do want to mention that topic of FSH, that study that you alluded to, we are now understanding that maybe we don't want to do hormone replacement just enough to minimize our symptoms. Maybe we do want to bring that FSH level down because that does have an impact on weight. We're not only seeing it in the research, but clinically I'm seeing it. My colleagues are seeing it. Like if you are on estrogen replacement therapy, you want to get that FSH level down a little bit and that will help with your weight. Okay. So this is going to be one of the questions that will come from you saying that. So I was always kind of taught that an FSH greater than 40, you're very close, if not knocking on menopause's door. I've read some research recently that's suggesting that threshold even lower, like 25, but I have many menopausal women when I'm looking at their labs, their FSH is 90, 180. And so what you're suggesting is, you know, having a discussion to help optimize. So we'll use that FSH not as a throwaway lab in menopause, but as a way to determine that we're providing more hormonal therapy, more hormonal support to get that lowered. Right. And I'm not talking, you know, down to 20 or 30, but maybe 40, maybe 50 or 60 if you're up in the hundreds, you know, it is a dynamic level, just like hormones, the other hormones, because it's a brain hormone, it's responding, it's getting that feedback mechanism from the hormones you're taking or making, and it's responding by making more or less of itself. And so it does fluctuate. It's not a one and done, you know, it's not a light switch. It's a dimmer. It goes, it slides up and down. It doesn't turn on and off. And so it is worth kind of looking at that in a little bit um, more context than we have in the past. Conventionally, we're like, yep, we check it. It's high. You're in menopause. You're done. And what we've come to realize is it's not a light switch. It's not once it's high, it stays high. I've seen premature ovarian failure reverse. I've seen FSH of 180 go down to, you know, 20. Like it's incredible what our bodies are capable of when we really support the systems and get them functioning again. That's really helpful. And even listeners, I learned so much from Dr. Tabitha myself, even <laughs> as a clinician, I'm like, okay, FSH is a dimmer. It is not an on off light switch. Mighty Maca is a superfood drink mix full of 30 plus natural ingredients. And it was formulated by Dr. Anna Kabeca during her healing journey. 
Mighty Maca Plus ingredients, which include nourishing ingredients like organic maca powder, turmeric, quercetin, broccoli, parsley, trans resveratrol, pomegranate extract, and more, were carefully selected for immune support to sustain energy, provide mental clarity, and improve recovery. It also tastes delicious. It supports healthy detoxification and alkalinity in the body, balances hormones, fights free radicals, and neutralizes lactic acid, all while increasing your energy and vitality. It helps improve your digestion and reignites your libido. It's a powerful superfood drink mix that needs to be part of your daily routine. And Dr. Anna is offering my listeners 10% off your first purchase by using the link DrAnna.com slash Cynthia. That's 10% off your first per that's 10% off your first purchase by using the link DrAnna.com slash Cynthia. It's delicious and nutritious. Do you find yourself struggling to get a good night's sleep? If so, you may be dealing with a hidden mineral deficiency. It is not at all uncommon in perimenopause and menopause to deal with sleep challenges. And we know that one of many contributory reasons for poor sleep can be a reduction in specific minerals that help regulate sleep quality, including magnesium, which is involved in GABA, which is our body's main calming neurotransmitter. We also know that we need potassium to create melatonin. And this is a hormone that is a master antioxidant, but is also utilized to help induce sleep. We also think about things like zinc, which can balance excitatory neurotransmitters like glutamate. And if it's overactive, meaning if your glutamate levels are too high, it can prevent your brain from becoming more relaxed and inducing sleep. And lastly, selenium increases both our deep sleep and sleep duration. All these minerals matter a lot for sleep and any imbalances or deficits can have a major impact on the quality of sleep you get each night. And that's why I love Beam Minerals. They offer a full spectrum mineral supplement that gives you every essential mineral your body needs in the right doses, all in a highly absorbable liquid form. All you do is take a shot of bean minerals about an hour before bed. Don't worry, it tastes like water. And you'll replenish all of your body's minerals in about 30 seconds and give your brain what it needs for deep restorative sleep. I've been using this product over the last several months. I've really been impressed with the improvement in my sleep metrics, which I like to share on social media with my followers. And if you want a simple way to improve your sleep, head over to www.bminerals.com and use code Cynthia for 20% off your first order. That's www.bminerals.com and use code Cynthia for 20% off your first order. So let's pivot and talk about a common question that we receive. Women who've had early partial hysterectomies, wondering where in the world they are because they're no longer getting a menstrual cycle. This woman in particular, Paula was saying, I'm 44. I still have my ovaries. I am on HRT. Bravo to your GYN for taking care of you and it's working well. Should I still check progesterone and testosterone levels? And I also, should I fast like I'm a postmenopausal female? I think there's a lot of ambiguity about how to manage the post partial hysterectomy female in terms of, you know, how do they take care of themselves? Should we be monitoring other hormone levels? What are your thoughts on this particular type of patient in generalities? Well, there are a few certain things that you have to think about. 
conventional gynecologists still believe that they only need to give estrogen to a hysterectomy patient because the belief is that progesterone is only in your body to protect your uterus from unopposed estrogen. It is not well recognized in the conventional space that progesterone has benefits for your entire body. And I just want to quickly mention it's because we use so many synthetic progestins as conventional OBGYNs that we don't understand the benefits of progesterone other than the uterus. And so it just gets disregarded. So I have a feeling, even though she says she's on HRT, I have a feeling she's only on estrogen replacement therapy. So that can be part of her issue right there is again, you are imbalanced, you're out of balance, you need some progesterone. I would say progesterone is our calming natural anti-anxiety hormone. It helps us sleep, it keeps estrogen in check because you don't only have estrogen receptors in your uterus, you have them through your entire body, in your brain, in your skin, in your bones, in your heart, your cardiovascular system. And so it is imperative to keep the estrogen and progesterone together because that's what feels good. That's what feels right for our bodies. And so we can get women who've had hysterectomies who are on estrogen replacement therapy who still struggle with their weight and their sleep and their moods and all these other things because they don't have a complete hormone replacement therapy. And then there's the argument of what about testosterone? Because testosterone is made in our ovaries and a little bit in our adrenal glands. And so luckily we make a little more testosterone from our adrenal glands. So sometimes women don't have that drop, but sometimes they do. It depends on how healthy your adrenal glands are going into menopause. I like to say adrenal glands are the backup ovaries. As soon as the ovaries fail, we're looking to the adrenal glands. Hey, help us out. Give us testosterone and estrogen. And so if you go into menopause with adrenal dysfunction, it's going to be a rough ride. And so it is important to get those levels checked because I've seen women who think they're you know, on the right hormone replacement therapy, but no one's ever checked their testosterone and they have like zero testosterone and they can't lose weight. They can't build muscle in the gym. Their brain struggles to function. We tend to think of testosterone only as sex drive and affecting our libido, but it's like overall drive for life. It affects our ability and our desire to want to get up in the morning and even function. So, you know, that's a really key piece. And the other part of it is our adrenal hormone DHEA. So DHEA is our anti-aging keep us young and healthy hormone. It keeps cortisol, our stress hormone in check, kind of how progesterone keeps estrogen in check. We need DHEA. So if you go into menopause with adrenal dysfunction and you're not making DHEA, you're really going to struggle because you need those balancing anti-aging keep you young and healthy hormones. So I think getting that complete picture is really what's needed to understand what's going on in your body. And what we're doing is we're just picking and choosing a lab here or there, and we're not getting the full picture. So we're getting a confused picture. We're guessing. I mean, that's literally how I was trained was 
you just go by symptoms. You base it clinically and you just guess. You give them the lowest dose and then you wait for their symptoms to go away. And then you increase it if you absolutely need to, but there's no testing. It's all guessing. And we really need to get away from that mentality of, you know, practicing. I think it's so important to understand that there's differing opinions, but also understanding that it's more than just, are you having a lot of symptoms? For anyone that doesn't know this, uh, there's a great book. I talk about the XX brain in particular because it talks about progesterone and testosterone and estrogen receptors we have in our brains and understanding that we also have estrogen. And I mean, all of these sex hormones have receptors diffusely throughout the body. It's not just in our reproductive organs, as you appropriately stated. Fun fact, I'm taking a course through A4M right now. And the physician was saying that 25% of women actually maintain healthy testosterone levels in menopause. So not every woman listening that's at that stage of life per se might need supplementation or might need medication. I am not one of them. I am one of those people that, you know, you know, my testosterone levels have just kind of continued to decline and that's more the norm than not. Um, very good point about the fact that there are uh, synthetic progestins, there's synthetic estrogens. What we want to have is bioidentical. We want progesterone, we want estradiol. Uh, what are your thoughts about you know, there's biased and trias. We got a lot of questions about this. What are your thoughts and feelings? Obviously, you're not speaking to any one person. These are again general. We're having general discussions. We're not giving medical advice. But what are your thoughts about plain estradiol versus biased and trias, which are these combinations of different types of estrogens? That's a great question. And so what we've been trained is that you want to give a combination of estradiol and estriol. When, you know, we first started understanding that we have three main estrogens, estradiol, estriol, and estrone, we were giving all three in the alternative space. You know, I'm not even talking conventional. Like we just don't do this in conventional, <laughs> but in the alternative space, we would give triest. I mean, that was kind of common back in the 80s and 90s, I would say. And then we realized, oh, estrone, hmm, maybe we don't want so much of that. We're seeing that it might be damaging to the DNA in the cells, and maybe it's contributing to the cancer risk. Maybe that's the piece of that. And so then biased got popular, and we just did estradiol and estriol. And estriol is a much weaker form of estradiol. And so it was felt to be safer, right? Because it's weaker, it's not gonna stimulate cancer. And so that was really popular for a while. And now more research is coming out and showing that estriol might actually be blocking the benefits of estradiol in menopausal women. And we might be doing them a disservice by giving them this estriol because in fact, our body makes estriol from estradiol and estrone. It, so we don't necessarily need to give it. So there's still a lot of gray area. And I will tell you that doctors and nurse practitioners and PAs, we tend to practice how we trained. So if you trained 40 years ago, you're probably practicing eh, kind of the same as you did until you retire. And that's just the truth for the majority of practitioners in the country. 
it's not very many of us that are constantly, you know, learning and attempting to change how we practice and treat patients because it's scary. It's uncomfortable. You don't know what the outcome is going to be, right? But I will tell you that it is starting to trend more toward just estradiol for postmenopausal women, for systemic therapy. When you're talking about vaginal health, it does appear that estriol is beneficial and really helpful for that skin tissue. So I kind of go back and forth. I typically use estradiol for anything systemic. Like if we are trying to get rid of menopausal symptoms, protect the bones, protect the brain, any of that kind of stuff, I'm using estradiol. I will use estriol if someone has had breast cancer and they're super nervous and they want to be conservative and they just want vaginal or bladder support. I would use estradiol vaginally or estriol. You know, there's always a question of like, well, what kind of form should I use? Like every woman wants to know that before they come to see me, what do you prescribe? (laughs) And I try to explain to women it's dependent on the individual. It's awesome that we have all of these options available, the patches, the cream, the sprays, the gels, the ring inserts, the trochies, because not everybody absorbs things the same as the next person. And not everybody tolerates it. Some people are allergic to glue adhesive and can't use patches. Like there's a hundred reasons why you need a different form. And in general, The conventional space believes that anything going in the vagina doesn't really affect you beyond your vagina. So just know that. And it's not really true. That stuff is absorbed. And I have women say someone's had breast cancer and their oncologist is okay with vaginal estradiol. They get a little bit of a systemic benefit from that but their conventional doctor doesn't acknowledge it. So it's okay. You know, it's kind of a gray area. It's confusing, but I will say you don't always need crazy high levels of systemic hormones. Sometimes some vaginal estrogen is enough to really make you feel better. So it's dependent on your age, your medical situation, your risk factors, all of that. So Don't assume pellets are for everyone or patches are for everyone. Like you want to go to a provider who understands the benefits of the different modalities and knows which one is right for you. I think that's really key is bioindividuality. You know, this kind of one size fits all philosophy, particularly when it pertains to perimenopause and menopause does not work. So you want to make sure you're working with a provider that is able to fine tune and tailor things to your own unique needs. And much to your point, there are people out there, you know, I'm sure you probably have some people that don't absorb as much estrogen through their skin, or maybe as much as testosterone and, you know, understanding that there needs to be this kind of a platter or array of options to fine tune what works best. Now, while we're talking about testosterone and estrogen, let's talk about libido. Jessica said, I have zero libido. I'm 48 yet I eat healthy, sleep and exercise. This is common. Mm -hmm. What supplements or medication can I try? So I think we're going to go back to testing because we don't want to guess. But when you're working with a perimenopausal woman or even a menopausal woman who says to you, 
I have zero libido. Like I may mentally have a desire to have sex, but there's no physical connection. I'm struggling with loss of orgasms. It's harder for me to have sex because I have lubrication issues. There are so many pieces of the puzzle that go along with this, but let's assume that this question is coming from someone who is in a monogamous relationship and just wants to improve upon what her options are in terms of figuring this all out. We always jump to testosterone, but I will tell you from personal experience and, you know, I've had endless number of women tell me their libido improved just with estrogen getting back on board. So I think that we don't understand fully how our libido works, but I do think it's a combination of our hormones. It's not just testosterone. And sometimes getting that estrogen up level is enough for women. And they're like, oh my gosh, I'm so good. Like I literally see every scenario. I see women who get on estrogen, progesterone, and testosterone And they don't tolerate the testosterone because they, you know, tend to metabolize it down the more androgenic pathway. They get the cystic acne on their chin or they get some hair thinning or something. They just don't like how it's working in them. And so they go off of it, yet their libido improves on the estrogen and progesterone. Some women, they need a lot of testosterone. Some women are on estrogen and progesterone and they feel good and have a better libido when their testosterone is like at the upper limits of normal, whereas other women can't tolerate that at all. Another piece of it is what's your sex hormone binding globulin doing? Because that is a carrier protein that these hormones bind to. And either if you're bound up to this carrier protein, then it's not really available to do its job. So a lot of people will have elevated sex hormone binding globulin, but also have high hormone levels and we're afraid to give them hormones, but they need it because their hormones are not available. So it really is a more complicated picture than we're making it sound. But in general, I would say there's a couple things. Get your levels tested. It's so easy to test a total and free testosterone. It's a simple blood draw. It's covered by insurance. Get your DHEAS level done. See what those three look like. Some labs will also give you like a bioavailable testosterone, which is a third way to test it. And that's saying it's not attached to that carrier protein. It's available for use right now. (laughs) So you'd be surprised if you get your level done. It's probably like 0.1 or 0.2. It's like spitting in the wind. There's nothing there. And people get confused because a lot of conventional doctors will only test a total testosterone and they'll be told you're normal because it's quote unquote in the normal range. And so you're missing the piece of do you have any free available or is it all bound up? And I would love to just mention this caveat that the lab ranges on our labs are for disease. They're telling you, yes, you have an organ and it's functioning, it's making hormones, or you have a tumor that's making hormones. Like it's very extreme. You're either in ovarian failure or you have a tumor. There's no optimal range on these labs. So you really cannot go by those references. So just a caveat there. So I would say 
it's really common for younger women to have a desire. They see someone they're interested. They feel like, yes, let's connect. I have a libido. And then you act on it or not. Whereas once you get more toward menopause, I recommend doing the act to create the libido, to create the feeling, because it's not necessarily just there anymore. I mean, our biology is our biology. If we're no longer reproducing, that piece isn't there to stimulate the need to procreate. And, you know, we forget that we're just these procreating animals, but that's the truth. That's our biology. So what I recommend is women get into the acts and that creates the desire to want to keep doing it. So that means like spending some time looking in your partner's eyes, getting intimate, having those conversations, massaging each other, smelling him or enjoying the pieces that you enjoy, like their skin or their touch, or their voice, and really honing in on that. And that will start to create desire. And then you will notice you will want to engage in it more because it feels good. That's how we work as people, you know? So that's what I usually recommend. So get tested, figure it out. You can try supplements. I say they work probably 30 or 40% of the time. But usually you need either DHEA, which can be gotten as a supplement, or you need testosterone replacement. I think it's really important to just mention that, you know, don't automatically think that you have to jump to medication, that there is this lifestyle piece. And I think a lot of people, I mean, I'm certainly at a stage of life where I have teenagers, you know, they're no longer as intensive, you know, helping them get fed and dressed and bathed, but you know, the parenting becomes just as intense. It's just in different ways. And it allows partners and hopefully that they're reconnecting because they have a little bit more time by themselves together than they did when their kids are younger. Now we're talking about testosterone. There are also questions about individuals that have high testosterone. So Angie said, my daughter just had blood work come back and her testosterone is high. She's young. So this is a 17 year old. What are some solutions to get it within normal range? Again, this is not medical advice. I believe it was 75 is what she says here. I know that as an example, PCOS is the number one endocrine disorder in the world. I think a lot of people underestimate how prevalent it is. And so I know PCOS or polycystic ovarian syndrome, and I have a great podcast with Dr. Felice Gersh on this that we can link up is pretty common. But when you're dealing with adolescents, young women, when they come in with suboptimal levels of testosterone, what are you thinking of beyond PCOS? Or is that the only thing you're thinking about? No, I'm very much thinking about their diet and their lifestyle. Teenagers and women in their 20s, they're busy. They're doing a lot of stuff. And there's a lot of stressors on them that they don't necessarily know how to navigate very well yet because they haven't had those life experiences, right? So it can feel super overwhelming just being in high school, taking AP classes, doing a couple sports, trying to keep up with your friends and go out on the weekends. Like that can be enough to cause hormone disruption right there. And your hormones are already struggling to be balanced because this HPO axis 
is so new. Your brain and your ovaries talking back and forth, it's a new conversation. They don't know what they're saying to each other yet. It takes a few years to really learn that communication. Just like you have trouble talking to your teenager, your ovaries have trouble talking to the brain. And so if you go and you add in too much cortisol, our stress hormone, that mucks things up and throws things off. And then you go add gut issues because you're living on a diet of like high fructose corn syrup, gluten and dairy, which is all super inflammatory. That is really going to drive these imbalances. And you're right. We're seeing metabolic issues in younger and younger people. And that causes all these hormone imbalances. So first and foremost, I'm glad she got her level checked. That's impressive in and of itself because we're often overlooking that. I would like to know what her DHEAS level is as well, her sulfated DHEA and her free testosterone. And then try to get her estrogen and progesterone levels you know, according to the cycle. Typically, we want to measure them on cycles day 10 and 21 if you're having a regular cycle, just to see what your peak levels are, what they are at their highest. And a lot of times, if you're going into some metabolic dysfunction, your estrogen progesterone are going to be off. But the other piece that doesn't get checked is the blood sugar and insulin, right? So, that is key. And you might have to really advocate for her to get those done because most insurance companies only pay for that after you have diabetes. But I want to know what is her average blood sugar over the past three months? Is that A1C down around five where we want it? Is her fasting insulin down around five where it's healthy? Like I want both of those below five for a 20 year old. Like she should be probably, you know, four and a half, four. And those are really good indicators of what's going on. So just know that sleep affects all of this, our diet, our stress levels. And so teenagers are kind of the perfect storm for this PCOS setup situation. But I'm glad that you did that with Felice Gersh because she's amazing with PCOS. And this stuff is reversible. Like that is what people need to really know, like have hope because you can turn all of this around. This is not, you know, a disease that you're just going to struggle with the rest of your life. You can stop all of this. Yeah, I think it's really important for people to know how much that lifestyle piece really plays into these hormonal imbalances. And as someone who was a thin phenotype PCOS person that never had abnormal labs, it wasn't until I tried to get pregnant that we realized I had this progesterone deficiency and we went down that rabbit hole. So I think there's this common misnomer that everyone with PCOS is obese. That's actually not the case. And so that's why I remind people that if you've got some of these symptoms, you don't necessarily have to have classic symptoms on an ultrasound in terms of having cysts on your ovary. It could be this insulin resistance, inflammation, you know, high normal or sub super therapeutic is what I'm trying to say. Testosterone levels, all of these things along with that fasting insulin, et cetera, can really be keys that this might be something worth pursuing and addressing proactively instead of waiting until I was in my thirties, wondering why I wasn't ovulating. 
interesting question. We're going to pivot a little bit and we're going to talk about feelings of satiety. So Jill says, is there a biological issue or mindset issue if you never feel full and always want to eat regardless of a healthy or satisfying the foods you are eating? Now, I've come to find that there's a lot of different reasons that motivate patients to eat. It is not just intrinsic hunger, but when you're working with women and they're asking you, is there something changing in my body? Like, is it this change in estrogen that's driving the lack of hunger? What are some of the things that could be contributing when you hear a patient kind of address this and say that they don't feel satiated, irrespective of how healthy the food is that they're eating? It's not just that they're eating a standard American diet. This is even happening with healthy food. Yeah, I don't hear that a lot. I think I hear a lot that I eat because I'm bored or because it's time or because I'm going out and I want to enjoy, you know, my friends or my family. I would say, you know, we have to look at leptin levels. Sometimes you can get some leptin resistance happening. And so it is becoming more common to check a hemoglobin A1C or an insulin, but not yet leptin. And we can start to have some resistance the same way that we have insulin resistance. So I like to think about resistance as you know, you have all your cells that need to take the blood sugar out of your blood and store it or use it to make energy. You need to do something. But if your cells are inflamed and those hormones can't bind and send their signal, think those processes can't happen. And so you have to make more of the hormone to send the same signal. So like insulin has to start yelling, please take up the sugar, please take up the sugar. And so you have to make more and more and more to yell louder. That's the same thing with FSH and menopause. It has to yell louder so that levels increase. And that same process can happen with leptin. And so that's what like one of the biggest reasons I love fasting. I really do women see that it resets things and it makes their hormones sensitive again. They don't have to, you know, be stuck in this resistance pattern of we're not hearing you, we're not hearing you. It's kind of like a reset. And if you calm your gut down, a lot of bad stuff will die off, right? And the hormones will reset. And a lot of women will realize, oh, I was just getting mixed signals or messages, or I was getting confused messages. I think one of the most confusing messages we get is carb cravings. I believe most of that is coming from the chemicals from the bacteria and the yeast in our gut. That's not us wanting it. It's not our brains wanting it. It's what's living in our gut. They want those sugars, those carbohydrates, yet we make ourselves feel bad for having these cravings when really we just need to kill these guys off. You know, they got to go. And part of it is starving them out with fasting. Or sometimes you have to use some herbicidal stuff like oil of oregano and thyme or mastic gum and different things for bacteria. So I love stool testing. I mean, I just think that's where it's at because, you know, wellness begins in the gut, disease begins in the gut. And if you're not addressing that piece of it, you're going to be confused about what your body's trying to tell you. So I would ask her to like, really do some journaling and some food diary and figure out like, is this simply food related? Are you getting enough healthy fats to feel satiated enough protein? I think 
what I hear commonly is they think they're getting enough. And then when they actually log it, they put it in an app or they write it down, they're surprised. Oh, I'm not eating enough. You know, I skipped yesterday and today and I only ate like two bites of this. And we really have a warped idea of what we are intaking. So I think it's really multifactorial. I think we put too much blame on ourselves. We have to look at the gut microbiome and see how this is playing into all this. And then what are our hormones doing? Are they functioning well? Or do you have some resistance going on? So there's a lot of pieces to this puzzle. And then you have the whole emotional eating thing on top of it, right? That's a whole nother subject. Have you guys heard about a bioactive whole food on the market with 5,000 published research studies backing it? When my oldest son needed to go on antibiotics a few months ago, I discovered Armra Colostrum and the benefits for him and his recovery from being on antibiotics have been instrumental in me now recommending this to my dairy non-sensitive patients and clients. Armra's colostrum strengthens immunity, ignites metabolism, fortifies gut health, promotes hair growth and skin radiance, and powers fitness performance and recovery. My son has mentioned to me over and over again how great his gut feels, how he has improved his digestion and gut function as well. Colostrum is a rich, exclusive source of immunoglobulins or antibodies that optimize our immune defense even during cold and flu season. And we know that mucosal barriers house over 80% of our body's immune cells, including including the antibodies IgG and SIG-A. And these immunoglobulins bind and intercept harmful particles like viruses, bacteria, and toxins, blocking them from crossing into the barriers into our bloodstream. And Armrest Colostrum contains the highest levels of SIG-A and IgG to ensure your most fortified first line of protection. It's sustainably sourced, and it's important to know that you want to mix colostrum only with cold liquids or foods or dry scoop it into your mouth. This is also great for the oral microbiome. And we've worked out a special offer for my everyday wellness community where you can receive 15% off your first order. Go to tryarmra.com slash Cynthia15 or enter Cynthia15 to get 15% off your first order. That's T-R-Y-A-R-M-R-A.com slash Cynthia15. You definitely want to check it out. Weight gain is one of many symptoms that our hormones are in decline, especially as we navigate perimenopause into menopause. Dr. Anna, who is a great friend of mine, is an OBGYN who's treated thousands of women just like you and I who experience increasing dryness and even pain in the bedroom as they get older. Jolva is the solution Dr. Anna formulated for her own clients, and it has since been loved by over 100,000 women. It's a feminine cream with DHEA that helps the body regenerate moisture from the inside out. 92.8% of Jolva users experienced a significant improvement in the first four to eight weeks. Get 10% off your first purchase of Jolva by using the link dranna.com slash Cynthia. That's DrAnna.com, Cynthia, and get 10% off your first purchase. Yeah, no, that's such a thoughtful response. And it's interesting that one study that I referred to earlier about the high FSH and low estrogen and the protein needs, they actually talk in that study about the fact that if women aren't hitting those protein metrics, so at least 
100 grams of protein a day. And for anyone that's listening, that's thinking I'm nowhere near that close, that's okay. You can work towards it. But understanding our protein needs actually increase as we get older. And so we're trying to maintain muscle. We're trying to build a little bit of muscle, understanding that if we don't eat the protein, guess what? Our body's going to go looking for it. And what does it usually look for? Carbs and fat, which when they come together, it doesn't typically come together in nature naturally. So that we're usually ending up eating foods that are hyper palatable, easy to overeat. And just so I just want to reinforce that piece. Like if you do nothing else, when you're tracking food is track your protein, just so you have some awareness about how much you're actually consuming. Because I find for me, if I hit those protein metrics, I'm full, like there's no eating, you know, eight ounces of steak will fill me up. I'm not looking for more food. I am totally satiated. But if I eat three ounces of protein, like you do at a lot of restaurants, you get, you know, protein on a salad, don't be ashamed or embarrassed to ask for more. I was in Chicago with a mutual friend of ours a few months ago. And every time we went to this one restaurant, I was like, can I have a side of shrimp? Can I have a side of chicken? Because the protein portions were so small. I knew that that would then lend itself to me craving other foods that weren't per se necessarily the healthiest because I was traveling. So thank you for that. In terms of looking at pain. So middle-aged women that are dealing with pain, sometimes cyclical. So um, this is a question from Melody. She mentions that she has cyclical around day 21 sacroiliac joint dysfunction after two kids. She said, after giving birth twice, I've had a wonky joint that periodically goes out, quote unquote, for a few days and gives me a lot of pain. After tracking my pain for a while, I noticed that it often coincides with my cycle and is at its worst around day 21. Remember, Dr. Tabitha talked about the magic day 21, which I know is when progesterone surges. I'm wondering if you think this indicates that my hormones are out of balance or is this something to be expected hormonally and is better dealt with mechanically through physical therapy? Thank you. Oh my gosh, great question. If nobody takes anything else away from today, I hope (laughs) they take away knowing that our joints are affected by our hormones. Joint pain is probably the most common menopausal symptom and most denied and, you know, just ignored. Literally, our hormones affect our joints because it affects the collagen and the muscles and everything going on associated with your joints. Progesterone is a relaxing hormone. As I mentioned, progesterone levels are really high in pregnancy because you need to relax your pelvis. You need to accommodate room for an entire human being to grow inside of your body. So you do get lax joints. And we sometimes see that after pregnancy, it continues to happen. And the key, there's a few key things you got to strengthen those muscles that support your joints. This was like my major issue. I've had a bad left knee my whole life. And, you know, I would go to the doctor and they would say, you need to strengthen your quads. And I just thought that was crazy and a bunch of crap at 15. I was like, that doesn't make any sense. And then I go to, you know, DO school and I learn how the musculoskeletal nervous system works and realize that, Everything going on around the joints is what's important. What's supporting the joints, the fascia, the blood flow coming into it, all of that stuff is what supports and keeps your joints healthy. So you have to have strong muscles. You got to hit the protein, like you mentioned. You have to do weight training and resistance training. But when it comes to the pelvis, that can be a really complicated picture. 
I would encourage every woman to just Google pelvic floor anatomy just to get an idea of the amount of muscles in your pelvic floor. It's astonishing. That was the hardest section for me to learn in anatomy class my first year of med school because it's so intricate and there are like multiple layers of all these tiny muscles living, you know, on top of each other and working together and against each other. And it's a really complicated area. And so you can get caught in traps of having really tight pelvic floor muscles in some area that are pulling your bones out of place. So we have like our sacrum, which looks like a triangle. We have these big wings of a pelvis bone. We have our spine coming down. And all of these have to somehow stay in alignment along with our femurs, our leg bones coming down. And so if you are tight on one side, you're going to pull that sacrum out of place and the pelvis is going to go this way, and then you're going to get joint pain. And so we always are like, there's something wrong with the joint and it's not the joint the majority of the time. It's everything around it. So I would say I was happy to hear she's going to physical therapy and getting pelvic floor support that needs to be done by a specialist who like literally just does pelvic floor therapy, right? Erica Zeal is my absolute favorite online person for pelvic floor support. She's all about core strengthening because you have to have a strong core to have a balanced aligned pelvis. And so I would encourage your listener, like keep doing that work. That is where the solution is. We all get weak abs when we have a pregnancy and carry a pregnancy. So she needs to strengthen her core. She needs to strengthen her leg muscles so that those are like the anchors around the pelvis for those joints. And that needs to be strong. She needs to have that strong foundation. But I did want to mention, so you want to get your hormones checked. You want to make sure they're in balance and that you don't have too much progesterone and not enough estrogen. You know, that was kind of her question. That's key. But you also want to check your sugar because that is one of the biggest reasons for joint pain as well is just inflammation from too much sugar in your diet. And we think we're not eating sugar because we're quote unquote, not adding it and stuff, but I promise you it's already been added. It's been added to all the boxes and bagged foods that you're eating. So even if you're eating smart popcorn or clean crackers or whatever you're eating, I promise the sugar has been added. It's been added to your salad dressings, to your ketchup, to your condiments, and you're getting a lot of it. So you add, you throw in a piece of cake or a couple of cookies, you could have a really inflamed joint. So that is something to be mindful as well. But I would say, get your hormones checked, work on that piece. That definitely is part of the issue and then support everything around your joints. So hopefully that wasn't too much of an answer. No, that's the DO in me. (laughs) No, no, that's amazing. And for everyone that's listening, even if you've had a C-section, you can have pelvic floor dysfunction. It is not just for the vaginal deliveries. I couldn't agree with you more. It's interesting in other countries, pelvic floor therapy is a standard of care after women deliver babies. It is here in the United States where it is not. So 
you may not be familiarized with it, but know that in other parts of the world, it is standard of care that women are referred immediately after delivering babies. So just something to kind of keep in mind, kind of goes along with this very patriarchal medical system that we're a part of as women. Other questions that came in were things around skin issues. Suzanne said, what can I help with in perimenopause and menopause to tame quote unquote new skin reactions? I'm not sure where they are coming from, but I've been supporting my gut and liver for years. I'm using compounded biased since October. When she's saying skin reactions, I'm not sure if she's speaking to skin sensitivities or if she's talking about new acne or pimples or breakouts. Do you have any thoughts about skin sensitivities at this stage of life? Well, hormones definitely affect what's going on in our skin and estrogen can stimulate histamine release from our mast cells. So like when women are pregnant and their estrogen levels are higher, we can see a lot of itching, a lot of rashes, things like that. She mentioned she's doing gut and liver support. So we're going to assume she doesn't need support with that, but that is very commonly a reason why you're having these reactions. It could be that she's releasing too much histamine from the estrogen. If she doesn't also have progesterone on board to keep that in check, that she might be getting this mast cell activation. And some women find they can no longer tolerate high histamine foods around menopause. And that's usually what our go-to is. Like, let's have a charcuterie board with some aged cheeses and some you know, salami and all that stuff and some wine, like all of these highest kombucha, kombucha, (laughs) like we're doing all the right things. Right. But not always, not always. So that is something to evaluate. I would just say, like, look and see, are you eating high histamine foods? Are you having runny nose or stuffiness or anything else going on. Sometimes we get ringing or plugged ears, that kind of thing. If it's more acne associated, she again might have a hormone imbalance or maybe she doesn't metabolize her hormones in the most efficient way. Maybe she's making too much of dihydrotestosterone. So you could test and evaluate all of that. I would say If it's more of a localized thing since starting, it could be the base in the compounded cream. I've seen that quite a few times. Or some women don't tolerate the patches, the adhesive, the glue on the patches. So she could ask her compounding pharmacy to try a different base and see if that resolves the issue or to get her hormones in a different form for a little while and see if that's the issue. I wish we had a little more detail on that. Gosh. Yeah, it's so common. And just for full disclosure, I don't know if I've shared this on the podcast, but last year in the midst of the crush of the book launch, I'll just say like high stress, good (laughs) stress. I never in my life had ever had a systemic histamine reaction. And I had three separate times where I was like on podcasts and I would just suddenly break out in hives head to toe. I was like, why do I feel weird? And it turned out I had this imbalance of estrogen to progesterone And I had to go several months with a lower histamine diet, which as you mentioned, charcuterie, I don't even eat dairy. I don't even drink wine, but all of a sudden fermented vegetables, fermented tea, 
you know, those aged meats could not eat them because they would provoke this massive histamine release. And so as you appropriately mentioned in a high estrogen state, you get this mass cell degranulation and you get this massive histamine response. I'm so grateful that that only happened three times in my life, but it was enough (laughs) that it made an indelible impression, but it also speaks to the fact that this is a common thing to see in women. And I see a lot of it around alcohol um, Mm -hmm. as one example, or there's this mindset that that if a little bit of something is good, more is better. So again, like kombucha, kombucha is good, but you shouldn't be drinking five bottles a day. And when people would tell me, I'm like, whoa, that's a lot. (laughs) That's really over committing to something that is otherwise fairly healthy and fairly benign. But I'm so glad to know that, you know, you're on the same page. And for the individual that submitted this question, we just need a little bit more information. So it was like a localized response or a systemic response. Lastly, because I want to be respectful of your time. And of course, you're one of those very favorite podcast guests. So I would love to have you come back and we can do another AMA. (laughs) This is a question from Colleen. She said, I still get my periods pretty regularly. I had blood work done in late October. All my levels were good. They said they would not technically say I was even perimenopausal. The entire month of February, my symptoms have been crazy. Insomnia, night sweats, moody, emotional. Does this happen that quickly? Mm, I love this question. I actually did a podcast episode on this recently, more recently, because literally I found myself on the couch one day not wanting to see my patients, do my job. I didn't want to talk to my husband at all. Like he disgusted me (laughs) and I struggled for three days. I just had no interest in life. And on the third day, it hit me. Oh my gosh, I think my estrogen tanked. And lo and behold, it sure did overnight. And then, so I got an estrogen patch and within hours I started to feel awake and alive. And I got off the couch and I started answering messages and like cleaning up the mess of ignoring things for three days. And I doubled the patch. And three days later, I felt like myself again. And that was shocking to me because we are trained that it's a slow process. The dimmer just slows down, right? And that there's warning signs that it's coming, that type of thing. But for some women, it really is like, oh my gosh, you just fell off the cliff. And some women come back and some women don't. I wasn't going to wait to see if I was coming back. Like three days of not functioning was enough for me. I got on the estrogen. So To answer that question, yes, it's not common. I don't see that. The majority of the time I see, "Eh, I'm starting to have a lot of symptoms. Oh my gosh. And it's more of a roller coaster up and down. But if you tank, you drop down that roller coaster and you stay down, that can happen. The other piece of it, when I read the question was I was thinking, were her levels actually good? Was it interpreted appropriately? Because again, Just because you're in the range doesn't mean those are optimal levels. It doesn't mean that you necessarily ovulated and have balanced hormones. So there can be indicators of things coming, but every once in a while, myself included, you just fall off the cliff. Well, thank you for being so transparent about your own experience. I think that for a lot of individuals, they will find that they've experienced something very similar to themselves. I've been scary. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. So 
in 2021, for a period of time, I was taking estrogen, progesterone, and testosterone. And at one point we figured out that the estrogen and testosterone were too much. So we had to kind of dial back and to be completely transparent, I just stopped them abruptly. And I told my doctor, that's what I did. Well, I went from having super physiologic levels to having none. And we had a mastermind event and I got in an airplane. I got in the wrong seat, not on one, but two flights. Then I got off on the wrong floor of my hotel room of my hotel multiple times. And I knew that it was these changes in sex hormones and it was scary. It was definitely one of those things where I remember explaining to my GYN, I don't ever want to have that experience again. Like I understand what happens when your body and your brain readily loses, precipitously loses these sex hormones. So being really conscientious about that. Thank you so much for your contributions to women's health. Please let my listeners know how to connect with you, how to figure out if you are licensed in their state, because I'm sure <laughs> there are many women listening that are going to want to connect with you, especially about your social media and let us know about your podcast. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much. Yeah. I love helping women through this transition. So if you feel like I've done all the stuff I can do on my own, I need some guidance. We would love to support you. The best way is to just go to drtabitha.com. It's D-R-T-A-B-A-T-H-A, all A's, no I's, and just fill out the form to book a discovery call. You'll just have a call with my team and they will answer all of your questions and get you taken care of. It's super simple. And they'll let you know, like, are you in the state that we're licensed and whatnot? And every once in a while, I help women that I'm not licensed in their state because they have providers or doctors who are willing to help. They just don't know what to do. So they want some guidance. And so we kind of collaborate and do that type of situation. So if you are really struggling and you're like, I need help, like you do not have to go to someone locally in your town. You can literally hop on a HIPAA compliant Zoom and see us and we can get you taken care of. But I talk about all this stuff on the Gutsy Gynecologist show. I was thinking back to the first time I had you on as a guest this morning. I was laughing at myself because I had done like a 24 hour fast and I was, I don't know, <laughs> 20 hours into it. And I remember my brain went totally blank and you were so gracious and you just kind of laughed with me and we got through it. I was like, Oh my gosh, we've come a long way. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it's funny when you go back. So if listeners go back to the very beginning, the, when the podcast in 2018 was co-hosted by Kelly and myself, I laugh when I hear myself. I'm like, oh my gosh, I didn't realize that A, I could be a really good interviewer because at the very beginning, I didn't really know what I was doing. And I think, you know, that's the beauty of it. It's this kind of evolution. And I think when you have good podcast guests, it's just like a little dance or playing tennis. You know, I lob a yeah. ball over, you answer, and then it comes back and- as I'm sure it is for you, I'm sure you love being a podcast host. It's probably one of your favorite things you do in your business. Yes. So I would encourage everybody if they want more stuff about hormones and just gynecology in general, like that's what we're covering. Awesome. Thank you again for your time. My pleasure. If you love this podcast episode, please leave a rating and review, subscribe and tell a friend. Just as you carefully choose the cut of meat or freshness of produce that you cook at home, you should carefully choose chemical-free cookware 
that provides a healthy and safe cooking experience. The materials in 360 cookware are safe, sustainable, and of the highest quality. Their cookware is 100% free from any toxic chemicals as the company produces quality stainless steel cookware and bakeware without added chemicals, and all are manufactured in the United States. It's also the leading manufacturer that equips kitchens with cookware and bakeware that are free of all of the toxic chemicals and coatings, including PFAS, Teflon, and ceramic. And the best thing is that when used properly, the product's construction provides nonstick properties in a product that can be passed down through generations. Go to www.360cookware.com and use code CYNTHIA20 for 20% off your first order. Again, that's 360cookware.com and use code CYNTHIA20 for 20% off your first order. We've been using their products over the last several months and have really been pleased with not only the durability, but ease of cleanliness. 